If you haven't already opened your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, our text is Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 17 through uh, 26. And as Sam said, we are uh, picking up in the middle of uh, a story. We are picking up in the middle of a, a scene that really spans most of chapters 3 and 4, uh, picking up where we actually left off before Thanksgiving. And so if you'll remember back, if you can remember back uh, to uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, as Sam said, the, the scene begins when, when Jesus heals this layman, this, this man who had been placed outside of the temple to, to ask for alms. And as, and as Peter and John were going into the temple to pray, they encountered him and, uh, and he did what he did. He, he asked for alms, but, but Peter said to him, you know, silver and gold we do not have, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And immediately the man's health was restored. Immediately he began walking and leaping and, and praising God. And understandably, this, this sign attracted a crowd. And it was to that crowd that Peter began to preach in verse 11. And really, his, his sermon can be divided into two parts. In the, in the first part, the first paragraph there, verses 11 through 16, you, you have sort of uh, Peter's summation of what God has done. That this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up again, and now through faith in his name, he has made this man well. Salvation has come through the name of the resurrected Lord. That is the indicative, that is the, the statement of what has been done, of what has been accomplished. But then, beginning at verse 17, he, he transitions into the imperative. He, he gives a summons. He, he, he summons the people to repent in light of what God has done. You must now therefore repent and, and turn back to God. And as we look this morning at that imperative section, it's important for us to remember uh, that it is always tied to the indicative, that there's always both. There's, there's always the, the statement of the truth and then our response to the truth. Because the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us. It, it's not merely advice. It's not merely what we are supposed to do, but it's what, it's what God has done for us. And our repentance is a response to an accomplished gospel. But it is that response that we want to focus on this morning. We, it's that response that we want to consider as, as Peter unpacks it for us here in verses 17 through 26. And I should just tell you up front, we're not going to get through all these verses this morning, all right? So it's going to take us a couple weeks to get through 17 through, through 26. But this morning we're going to begin where Peter begins. We're going to begin with what you might call the prerequisites of repentance. What is it that has to come first? What is it that comes before? And I think that Peter actually gives us two prerequisites of repentance. Now, we're, we're familiar with the idea of a prerequisite. We, we know what that is. We, we know that if you're going to take a more advanced math class, if you're going to take a more advanced um, you know, science class, there are other sort of foundational classes that you have to take first. You have to, you have, to have basic math down before you can take a more advanced math class. You have to have basic science down before you can take a, a more advanced science class. It's what allows you to get into those more advanced classes. But, but we know what a, but even though we know what a prerequisite is, we're, we're a little uncomfortable with the idea of a prerequisite for repentance. It seems that 
that that's somehow wrong. It, it seems to suggest that, that we have to somehow make ourselves worthy of forgiveness. And the idea of making yourself worthy of forgiveness, the, the, the idea of qualifying yourself for forgiveness seems entirely at odds with the gospel that we, we celebrate each week. It, it seems entirely at odds with, with this gospel that we hold dear. Think of the, the song, Come Ye Sinners, the song that we're going to sing at the close of our worship this morning. And that, and that song, we, we remind ourselves that the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. We, we say, do not uh, dream of a fitness that, that you could establish that before you come to him. Don't think that you need to get your life in order before you, you come to him. Don't think that you need to qualify yourself. The, the whole song seems to, to preach against the idea of any prerequisite for repentance. So how is it then that, that Peter sets before us things that must happen First, well, let's, let's look at what he says and see if we can understand why there is actually a prerequisite for repentance. And, and the first prerequisite that he mentions is ignorance. We, we see this in verse 17. Notice what he says. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. The clear implication of, of Peter's logic is that these men of Israel including the women, of course. These men of Israel may repent and they may be forgiven because they acted in ignorance. And actually, Paul says something similar about himself in his first letter to the Timothy. Maybe you remember it. He says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly. In unbelief. So Paul says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly. And Luke seems to be saying the same sort of thing here. He, he seems to be saying that these men of Israel may receive mercy. They may be forgiven because they acted in ignorance. And of course, the other side of that coin is that if you didn't act in ignorance, if you acted knowingly, that would seem to be the opposite, then you may not repent. You may not be forgiven. Ignorance is the prerequisite of repentance. And that, that just sounds harsh to modern evangelical ears. It sounds contrary to the gospel. It, it, it sounds just impossible to, to suggest that, that there's a way of sinning that puts us beyond the, the reach of repentance. That, that doesn't seem right. But, but it's actually an idea that we encounter not just here, but actually throughout the scriptures. You may remember, as we, as we saw it in Hebrews when we were studying uh, that letter, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer uh, a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And Jesus himself spoke of sins that would never be forgiven. He said, all the blasphemies against the Son may be forgiven, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will never be forgiven. 
And this idea of, of a sin that will not be forgiven, this, this idea of a, of a sin that uh, is, is of which we cannot turn, of which we cannot repent, it's actually rooted in the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law speaks about unintentional sins. And it's actually only unintentional sins that the law makes provision for, that the, that the law gives us a way of, of being forgiven for. It is, it is unintentional sins, not high-handed sins. We, we see this in Leviticus chapter 4 through 6 as it's talking about the sin offerings and the, and the guilt offerings. It is unintentional sins for which those sacrifices are to be offered. And so again, throughout the scriptures, beginning with the Old Testament law and really working our way through, through the Gospels, through Jesus' own teaching, through the teaching of the apostles, through the epistles, we see this again and again and again, that ignorance is a prerequisite for repentance. But we have to understand what this means, because if we go wrong here, we could end up cutting ourselves off from the hope of the gospel. If we get this wrong, if we don't understand what this means, we could end up cutting ourselves off from any hope of forgiveness because be honest with yourself. I hope that makes you a little bit nervous. I hope the idea that, that wait a second, only sins of ignorance can be forgiven? <laughs> That's a little troubling because I know myself, I know my own heart, I, I know that I have sinned willfully against the Lord. I know that I have sinned intelligently. I, I have sinned knowing that what I was doing was sin. How could that possibly be called a sin of ignorance? And if it's only sins of ignorance that can be repented of, what hope is there for a sinner like me? I hope that's the question you're wrestling with. I hope you know yourself well enough to know that, that you have sinned willfully against God. That with Paul in Romans chapter 7, you have kids say, the good I wanted to do, I didn't do, and the evil I didn't want to do, I did do. I knew what I was supposed to do, and I didn't do it. I knew what I wasn't supposed to do, and I went ahead and did it anyway. The question is, can those be called sins of ignorance? Can those be sins of which we repent? And what I want to show you this morning is that yes... Yes, when we actually look at what the scriptures say, even such willful sins can be called sins of ignorance. We know this first from the Old Testament examples. I told you that, that the, the idea of unintentional sins or sins of ignorance is actually rooted in the Old Testament law. And when the Old Testament law is describing these sins, it actually gives us examples of what these sins look like. And so there are sins that we would recognize as sins of ignorance. For example, if you, if you uh, are, are walking on the road and you meet your brother and, and you give him a hug and then you later find out he was unclean when you did that, you just touched something unclean and now you're unclean. You violated God's law. You're not supposed to touch unclean things and you just did. That's a sin of ignorance. We can, we can easily recognize that. We, we, we touched something unclean when we didn't know it was unclean and made ourselves unclean clean. But that's not the only kind of sin of ignorance that the Old Testament law talks about. The Old Testament law also talks about ignoring a summons. 
Imagine that the, there was a crime committed in your community and you witnessed it. You know what happened. And the, the, the judges are trying to figure it out. And they say, anybody who knows anything about this, come forward and testify. And for one reason or another, maybe because you're lazy, maybe because you don't want the truth to be known, whatever the reason, you decide not to testify. You decide to remain silent. That's a sin of ignorance. How? You know what you're doing. <laughs> You know you're being silent. You know you're not testifying. You know what you're supposed to do and you're not doing it. And yet, it's one of the sins mentioned. Another sin is when you defraud your neighbor, when you cheat him. When you, you sell him that old car with the leaky oil and you don't tell him. You defraud your neighbor in some way, whether through, through trickery or whether through outright theft. You defraud your neighbor. That's a sin of ignorance. Another sin of ignorance that we read about is when you lie about finding something that belongs to your neighbor so that you can keep it yourself. That's not something you do by accident. That's not something you do unknowingly. And yet, the scriptures call it a, a sin of ignorance. These willful, intentional sins are, are sins of ignorance. They are sins that can be covered by the blood of the sacrifice. They are sins for which the people of God can be forgiven. So what is the scripture talking about when it says that only sins of ignorance? If, does it have any meaning at all? If such sins can be called sins of ignorance, what does it mean? Well, I think the key to, to understanding this idea of a sin of ignorance is actually a phrase that we, we encounter in these Old Testament texts as it's describing these unintentional sins. Because the phrase that we come across again and again and again is if you did one of these things and then you realized your guilt. If you did one of these things and then were convicted. If you did one of these things and then were, were sorry for your sin and hated your sin and began to grieve your sin, if you realized your guilt, then it's a sin of ignorance. You see, in some sense, all sins are sins of ignorance from the biblical perspective. All sins are sins of ignorance because when you sin, you are walking according to the passions of your former ignorance. You're, you're not walking in accord with the truth. You're not walking in accord with wisdom. You're not walking in the light. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to destruction. Sin leads to disharmony and dis disunity. It, it breaks apart. It disintegrates. It destroys. And therefore, when we walk in sin, we are necessarily walking in ignorance. We are necessarily walking in rejection of the truth, out of accord, out of harmony with God's creation. All sins, therefore, at some level, are sins of ignorance. And what Peter, or what Luke is talking about here, what Peter is talking about in this sermon He's saying, listen, what is required of you if you would repent is that you acknowledge the ignorance of your sin. Is that you acknowledge that what you did was out of accord with God's good design for creation. That what you did was destructive. That what you did was, was harmful. That what you did was unto death, not unto life. To acknowledge a sin as a sin of ignorance is to acknowledge it as a sin that is contrary to wisdom, contrary to knowledge, contrary to truth. 
And so that's what the scriptures are getting at. That's the, the prerequisite of repentance is that you acknowledge, that you own, that you admit that your behavior, that your action, whatever it was, was a sin of ignorance. And so if you have come to realize your guilt, whatever your sin was, Whatever you did, if you now realize your guilt, if you now have a true sense of your sin, if you now have a grief and hatred for that sin, if you now acknowledge that that sin was contrary to God's good, perfect, and pleasing will, then you sinned in ignorance. And you may repent. For the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. But that is a prerequisite. You have to know your need. You have to acknowledge your sinfulness. You have to acknowledge the, the sinfulness of what you did. It is the one who will not admit his sin. It is the one who will not admit that he did anything wrong. It is that one who cannot repent and therefore cannot be forgiven. The old hymn was right after all. Feeling your need of forgiveness is required. But it is all that is required. When we recognize the sinfulness of our sin, we are positioned to turn from that sin. We are positioned to repent of that sin. The, the sinner who acknowledges the sinfulness of his sin, that one can repent. It is the one who refuses to acknowledge and admit that he did anything wrong, who is cut off from the opportunity of repentance. And so there we have the, the first Prerequisite. If we are going to repent, we must acknowledge that our sins were sins of ignorance. We must acknowledge that what we did was contrary to God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's truth. We must acknowledge that what we did was unto death and not unto life. But there's a second prerequisite mentioned here. We, we see it in verse 18. Peter goes on, he says, But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And so the, the second prerequisite here is Christ's suffering according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. It's not exactly a prerequisite in the way the first one is. The, the first one's a, a prerequisite of what we must do. But here's another thing that must be true if we are going to repent and be forgiven. We have the opportunity to repent and be forgiven because despite the people's sin, actually through the people's sin, in God's mysterious providence, he actually used the people's sin to accomplish his purposes through their sin, through their rejection. God's plan of redemption was fulfilled. Through their redemption, the Christ suffered and died. And now through his suffering and death, forgiveness is offered unto the people. You see, it is Christ's Suffering according to the plan and foreknowledge of God that is the second prerequisite. That, that is the second requirement if we are going to repent. You see, repentance by itself does not earn forgiveness. It, it does not require God to respond God's response to our repentance is still entirely gracious. He is, he is still responding out of his pure goodness, out of his pure mercy. But he has determined that he will allow his son to stand in our place, that he will allow his son to, to suffer for us. 
And because he put forth his son as the sacrifice for our sins, we may now repent and be forgiven. And so Christ's suffering according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God is the second prerequisite of repentance. And the fact that God is sovereignly working his will the fact that God is, is sovereignly working things according to, to the counsel of his will, it, it gives us the confidence to know that, that, that God put forth, not only is God sovereign over Christ, but God is, is sovereign over us as well. And if God was able to work through their sins, if God's purposes were not thwarted by their sins, his purposes are not thwarted by our sins either. You see, our sins do not surprise God. Our, our sins do not thwart God's Purposes. He put forth his son as the sacrifice for our sins, and therefore we can know that that sacrifice covers our sins. Our, our sins are not greater than he expected. We, we are sometimes surprised when other people sin and they sin against us. Think of, think of Joseph in the Christmas story that, that we heard over the, the course of the Advent season. Joseph was pledged to be married to Mary. But he found her to be with child before they came together. And what was his natural assumption? That she had been unfaithful. And, and being a righteous man, he decided he was going to divorce her, but to do it quietly as not to put her to open shame. He was surprised by what he thought was her sin, by what he thought was her unfaithfulness. And because he was surprised, he changed his mind. And don't we sometimes think that God acts that way towards us? Don't we sometimes think that, that our sins are, are greater than God expected? If God had known what we were going to do, He never would have chosen to save us in the first place. God's sovereignty rescues us from such thinking. It reminds us that our sins do not surprise Him, that He is the God who foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. It doesn't mean that He's responsible for our sins. We don't fully understand how God's sovereignty works. We, we don't fully understand how, how God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together. But, but we know that both are true because the scriptures tell us. God is absolutely sovereign. Man is a free agent who makes real decisions and is responsible for those decisions. So, so God's not overriding our freedom. He, he's not controlling us like a puppet. He's, but he is sovereign. And he is sovereign even over our sins. And he is not surprised by those sins. And his purposes are not thwarted by those sins. But he put forth Jesus precisely for those sins. And therefore, if you acknowledge the sinfulness of your sins, if you acknowledge that they were sins of ignorance, whatever they were, he invites you to come home. He invites you to return to him. He offers you forgiveness if you will but repent. And so the prerequisites of, of, of repentance are, are that we would know the sinfulness of our sin and that we would know the sufficiency of our Savior. That God put forth Christ as the suffering Savior. The one who suffered in our place for our sins that we who were guilty might instead be justified. This is what we must know before we come to God in repentance. But, but what does it actually mean to come to God in repentance? What is the essence of this repentance that we are being called to? And this is what we see actually in verse 19. Look with me there. 
Peter says, repent therefore and turn back. Turn back. That's the essence. That's the the heart of repentance. To repent is to turn back. Yes, we we must acknowledge the sinfulness of our sin. Yes, we we must acknowledge the sufficiency of of our Savior. But in and of itself, that is not enough. We must then turn. And and turning necessarily involves turning from and and turning to. You can't do one without the other. You have to turn from your sins. You have to stop popping the bubbles. You have to turn from your sins. Scripture uses the language of of putting off or of putting to death. We have to put off those sins that so easily entangle us. We have to put to death those desires that that lead us into death and destruction. We have to stop the behavior. We have to, to change the attitude. We have to turn from lying. We have to turn from malice. We have to turn from, uh, from vain glory. We have to turn from these sins that so easily entangle us. Those behaviors, those attitudes, they have to be replaced with something. And so we have to turn to God. It's not just that we stop certain behaviors. It's that we begin conforming our behavior to the pattern of God's will for our lives. We turn to Him, our confession says, with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. We turn to Him with the purpose of acknowledging, acknowledging Him as God, honoring Him as, as God in our, in our behavior, in our words, in our, in our attitudes. Essentially, repentance means returning to life as it was meant to be. You see, you were created by God and you were created for God. He he created you in His image to be His image bearer. You were meant to be His representative on earth. You were meant to be His, His hands and His feet, the hands and feet of His justice, the hands and feet of His mercy, the hands and feet of His, His love, the one who works good for your neighbor. That is your purpose. That is the, the purpose for which you were created. That is how you glorify and enjoy God forever. But each of us has gone our own way. We have have leaned on our own understanding. We have done what seemed right in our own eyes. We have not allowed Him to, to define for us good and evil. But we have followed the ignorant passions of our sinful And to repent is to turn from that ignorance, to to turn from those destructive passions back to God with the full purpose of acknowledging Him as God, honoring Him as God, obeying Him as God, bowing before Him as our Lord and King. Again, we we have to be careful at this point. It doesn't mean that, that somehow our new obedience buys God's forgiveness. As if that were even possible. Jesus tells us that even when we have done everything, we ought to consider ourselves unprofitable service. It's one of the parables we don't teach on often because it sounds kind of harsh. Why would God, why would Jesus want us to to think of ourselves as unprofitable servants? He's driving home the point. He says, listen, even if from this point on for the rest of your life you could obey perfectly, you could never pay off your debt because all that future obedience is already owed. How could it make up for past failures? You can't do more than is required of you because what is required of you is that you would honor God perfectly all the time in every aspect of your life. 
You can't possibly super arrogant. You can't possibly do more than God requires. And so even if you do everything from this point on for the rest of your life, you cannot atone for a single sin. And the truth is you won't obey perfectly from this point on for the rest of your life because even our best obedience in this life is, is tinged with sin, is polluted, it is defiled. We are sinful creatures who have not yet been entirely set free from the pollution of sin. It's, it's power and no longer holds sway over us. We are no longer under its condemnation. But its presence and its pollution in our life has not yet been eradicated. And so therefore, even our best obedience here and now falls short of the glory of God. And therefore, we can never buy God's forgiveness. We need to understand that. But we also need to understand that we don't need to buy God's forgiveness. That's not what repentance is all about. Repentance is, is not about buying God back into your favor. We don't have to buy his, his forgiveness because it has already been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ himself, the suffering Savior. His suffering, his death has already purchased our redemption. He gave his life as the ransom price for his people. He ransomed us not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. And because he has already paid the ransom, because he has already paid for our redemption, our repentance, God can honor our repentance with a gift of forgiveness. Still a gift. Still grace. But given to those who will repent. Given to those who will acknowledge the sinfulness of their sin and turn from it to Him with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And that sort of turning is required because that turning is the embodiment of faith. It's what faith looks like in our lives. To, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe that He is our good King. And to acknowledge Him as our good King, to believe that He is our good King, necessarily means turning to Him in order to honor Him as our good King. And so what Peter is saying to the crowds that day and what he is saying to the church throughout the ages is that if you will repent, you can be forgiven. But if you will not repent, if you will not turn from your sin, then you may not repent and you will not be forgiven. You see, what is necessary for us to repent is that we believe in the suffering Savior, that we acknowledge the sinfulness of our sin, and that we turn from that sin to God with the full purpose of endeavoring after new obedience. And so there's a warning here for us. If you will not acknowledge the sinfulness of your sin, if you are unwilling to turn from it, then you can't repent. Saying sorry and then continuing to do the same thing is not repentance. Wanting to escape the consequences of your sins is not 
repentance. I know that sounds harsh to modern evangelicals ears, but it is a truth we must own and acknowledge. We, we must acknowledge our sins and turn from them if we would be forgiven. For if we do not, there is no forgiveness offered to the unrepentant. That's what it means to, to sin with a high hand. That's what it means to, to sin with knowledge. It means to, to sin without repentance, without grief, without hatred, without being willing to turn from those sins. So if you were here this morning and you were clinging to some cherished sin, or if you were unwilling to acknowledge the, uh, the reality of your sin, then you need to hear Peter's challenge. If you will not repent, you will stand before the judge on the last day on your own record. And it will not go well for you. But if you will repent, if you will acknowledge your sin, and if you will turn from it to God, then all of the merit of Christ is yours. And all of the blessings that are His are granted to you. Blessings that we will look at in more detail next week, but just briefly notice what, what Peter offers. He, he says, the one who repents and turns will be forgiven. He will be refreshed. And he will have an eternal hope in the coming kingdom of God. If you have repented this morning, if you are here this morning as one who knows your sinfulness and longs to turn from it back to God with the full purpose of following after him, if that is your heart this morning, then these blessings are yours. The debt that, has, that was against you has been nailed to the cross. The curse that was on you has been lifted. And you now have been qualified for an eternal, indestructible inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. That is what is offered to the one who repents. Because such blessings are ours in and through Jesus Christ, the suffering Savior. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your grace. We, we rejoice in the fact that you call us to repentance. Saying that if we will simply acknowledge our need of you, you will come and meet that need in full. Father, grant to each of us repentance unto life, that we might know these blessings in full, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.